My dad wasn't much for singing. Um, I'm told by the guys that he used to hang out with at bars that he was pretty vocal when he would drink. Um, my dad struggled with alcohol, and in 1973, he radically came to Christ. He quit drinking, quit smoking, and um, um, not through any patches or anything like that. He just, he just kind of labored through it. And uh, um, total life transformation, like, you know, this is the kind of thing that's really rare to see. Um, but um, after he became a believer... I would stand next to him in church, and he'd just barely move his mouth. Um, I don't know if he thought he was tone deaf or what the deal was, but I'm thinking this morning he's probably singing pretty loud. Yeah, yeah. No guilt in life, no fear in death. Pretty cool words. Well, I want to pray with you, and then we'll step into the book of Ephesians. Would you do that with me? Father, we find ourselves at a place where... uh, we, we need to ask you to help us um, keep our mind from distractions. Uh, potential is, Father, that much of the stuff that we were involved in this last week and things that perhaps even were going on this morning will, will keep us from giving full attention to you. So we ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak through your word this morning. Help us to set aside the cares and the concerns that we perhaps brought in here with us this morning. We ask that you would give us the capacity to focus on you, and that will only happen through the working of your Spirit. So, God, first we ask that your Holy Spirit would be unleashed in this auditorium. You'd give us insight and understanding into the things that you want us to see. And we trust you to speak to us individually and specifically. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's true that throughout our life, beginning to end, our identity is linked with our actions. People put things on tombstones to identify who a person was. They, they engrave it into graveyards. They write quotes about people because their, their actions identify who they are. And identity and actions inseparably go together. Let me give you three examples, very specific. Princess Margaret She is the sister of the current Queen of England. She passed away a number of years ago. When she was a a young child, she was informed that she was um, second in line to the throne behind her sister. And uh, yet, that didn't seem to affect her. She was quite a precocious child. Um, She had a habit of doing things that seven, eight, nine-year-olds do. Um, But there came a time when her mother, the Queen of England, wanted to present her to the public. So she was invited to a public engagement. The media was there, cameras are flashing. Um, She had not been exposed much to the public up to that point. Um, Platform staged with microphones. The world's dignitaries were gathered for a special celebration for the queen. And her daughter, Princess Margaret, was sitting aside her. And um, the moment came when she was invited to come to the platform and speak to the world's dignitaries, even though she was very, very young. And as she scooted forward in her chair, her mother, not quite sure of what she would say, leaned over to her and said, remember, you are a princess. Walk like one. Who she was had to identify her walk. Second illustration. Nate is 18 years old. He finds himself in coastal South Carolina. 
The 12 most grueling weeks of his life have just gone by. He's in his final week of boot camp. He finds himself in the mud on a long endurance course. Barbed wire is stretched over his head, only 18 inches above his body. He's clawing his way through the red South Carolina dirt. His heart is racing. His mind is screaming with panic because there is a live fire machine gun across the top of his head, only 20 inches above him. Internally, he's thinking to himself, stand up and run, because panic is setting in. So as he digs deep into the red clay to push himself up at that very moment, one of his companions slides up alongside him and says to him, Nate, you are a United States Marine. Act like one who he is, has to identify his actions and his walk. Third illustration, a young man also in the military runs from battle. He's afraid. He's afraid of death. He finds himself now standing before his commanding general. The masses of the army of Alexander the Great have been in battle and victorious. Again, they sweep their way across the Middle East, except this one young man ran in the midst of battle. So he's brought before Alexander the Great for retribution. The young man stands before Alexander the Great, quivering and shaking, not knowing what's going to come, because they have killed soldiers for less things than this previously. Alexander turns and looks at him and says, young man, what is your name? And without looking, Up at the great leader, he says, my name, sir, is Alexander. Alexander the Great steps back and says, young man, what is your name? He says, my name, sir, is Alexander. For the third time, the great leader says, young man, what is your name? And this time, look me in the eye. And he looks Alexander in the eye, and he says, my name, sir, is Alexander. And he said, young man, I want you to either change your name or change your conduct. Because who he is is identified by his actions. Paul is pointing us to that very truth as we look at the book of Ephesians together. We've been through chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 in which he's been telling us who we are. Who we understand ourselves to be affects how we act. So in chapter 1, we've been told we are predestined in Him. We are chosen in Him. We are redeemed in Him. We are forgiven in Him. We have an an eternal inheritance in Him. So our destiny is in Him. So in chapter 4, he's going to say, you know that you're a child of God, now act like one. So chapters 1 through 3 are doctrinal. Chapters 4 through 6 are application. So we're going to go to application this morning. Would you go with me to chapter 4 if you have your Bibles? Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to look at verse 1 to start with. We're only going to do three verses this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, and if you're new here to New Hope, it'll be up on the screen as well, as uh, there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you if you need one. Paul says this, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, the word therefore may not really rock your world, but if you understand everything that he's just said in chapters 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, because of all these things that you have, therefore, I'm the prisoner of the Lord, and I'm imploring you. 
This therefore is the hinge word. God's already given us everything that we could possibly have. Therefore, he wants us to step up to the plate. Why does Paul say the prisoner of the Lord again? He said that in chapter one. Remember he told us he's a prisoner? He's hanging in chains, he's in Rome. He hasn't been given the death sentence yet, but he's just waiting his time out. So he's reminding them again, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. Why? Because since I'm willing to wear these chains, since I'm willing to carry this responsibility, I'm asking you, church, step up to the plate. So what he's really doing, he's pointing to the level of commitment that's expected of believers in Christ. So the, the key word here in this last half of the book is walk like who you say you are. The, the key word in the first half is wealth. If you grab the notes when you came in this morning that are inside your bulletin, on, it, it won't be up on the screen, but you see a little chart on the side there. It contrasts your wealth and your walk, what you have, what you've been given, and how you're expected to walk. So I want you to see this verse, in, and we'll drill down into it, in verse one where it says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. If I could take one phrase and emblazon it upon the walls of our church, maybe on the glass doors, so we see it constantly when we walk in and out. There you go. I'd love for the sun just to shine right through that. Walk in a manner worthy, because we all have to be reminded of this. Here's why. A great many believers do not look like the biblical, like the biblical definition of believers. They look more like posers, who they are on Sunday doesn't match with who they are in the workplace or who they are in the school system. The daily life is actually who they really are, their daily life, and they just pose on Sunday. And it becomes repulsive to people who are spectators. And they think of the church as being hypocritical. Now here's the temptation. When we hear something like that and we see a phrase like that, walk in a manner worthy of the calling, the temptation is that we immediately begin thinking of people in our life whom we know like that, that really don't walk like they're walking in a manner worthy. They walk as posers. And that is a temptation, but here's what I'm gonna challenge you to do. Think about yourself. Where are you on that particular issue? This, this might be you. If, if you identify with this sense of inconsistency in your own walk, this is really for you this morning. I really want you to hear this because you're at a great place right now. If you can identify that in your life, that there's a sense of inconsistency that who I am on Sunday is different than who I am during the course of the week, you're at a place where you can put a stake in the ground and say, this is a starting point. And from this point forward, I'm gonna start walking the way that God has really called me to walk. You see, you start by admitting, I'm there and I need to be forgiven. And I need a brand new beginning because I want to be more purposeful in my walk and in my talk and in my decisions, the things that I allow myself to watch on television or on the internet, the conversations that I allow myself to be engaged in. I want to be more purposeful about that. You might need to start where David started. I'm gonna ask you to do something with me. It's not gonna be on the screen. It's not in your notes. Turn with me to Psalm 51. If you can find your way through that. If you can't find your way in the Bible to Psalm 51, scoot over next to the person next to you, and I'm sure they won't mind if you read over their shoulder. Just trust me on that. Psalm 51. And look at verse 10. Listen to this. Psalm 51, 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence 
and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. You know who wrote that? King David. You know when he wrote that? He had just murdered his lover's husband. Maybe you didn't know that about David. He took Bathsheba and had an affair with her, and he sent her husband out to the front lines of a military engagement so that he would be killed. So now you're not thinking so bad about yourself, right? You read something like that with David saying, God, I need a brand new beginning. See, this is a point where you can put a stake in the ground like David. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. See, he wasn't asking for a garage sale heart. He didn't just want God to refurbish it. He's going to the creator and saying, create within me. I need you to wipe the slate clean. And do you notice how verse 12 blends into verse 13? It says, and then I will tell transgressors of your ways. In other words, I'm not qualified to talk to other people about God until I've dealt with the issues in my own life. So that's why I say you're at a great place this morning. You you might be right there where you say, God, I need you to create a clean heart within me. Renew that spirit within me. And if that's you, you might at this point also be saying, okay, what does God expect of me? I'm a believer in Jesus. And I'm willing to say, I want a brand new beginning. I want to walk like I'm supposed to walk. What does God expect of me? Well, big picture, he wants his nature to be our nature. So I'm going to invite you this morning to measure yourself. Where are you today in your walk? Where are you at? Are you further along in your walk today than what you were a year ago at this time? Can you look back from a year ago and say, um, I wasn't reading the word of God as much back then as I am now. I wasn't as gentle with people back then as I am now. I wasn't praying with people back then as much as I am now. Can you measure yourself on that line? My mom had measuring lines in our household when I was a kid growing up. There was a wall that they chose in our house, um, upstairs bathroom next to my sister's bedroom. There was a wall where she would write our heights on the wall, you know, as as we progressed, and she'd write the the date and the age next to it. And there was quite a record got all the way up, you know. And and when I moved out to college, it was was up here matching my head height because my mom wanted to keep doing it through high school. She had this little record. I, I was really pushed back against it as a teenager, didn't want her doing that. But we started doing the same thing with our kids. We started measuring our children and putting them against the wall. And when Lori and I moved, we wanted to take that wall with us because it was a record for us. See, God gives us a measuring line in Scripture. I don't know if you knew that, but we can measure our spiritual walk against the biblical definition of what it looks like to mature in Christ. Look with me on the screen, and you're going to see that also in your text a little bit further down in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, verse 13. Ephesians 4, 13 says we're supposed to be progressing to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children. And you read that and you go, oh, man, that hurts. Ugh. The full measure of the maturity of Christ? Are you kidding me? Anybody here want to say that they fit that definition this morning? Because I'll invite you up to preach and I'll sit down. That's an amazing measurement to measure up to the full measure of the maturity of the Christ, not that we can ever attain it. Paul even said that at the end of his life. Not that I have attained it, but we keep striving towards it. We keep pressing towards the goal, towards that finish line. 
So that's a huge measuring rod that we're supposed to be striving towards. So just as no one can be saved apart from Jesus, no one can measure up to the maturity of Jesus without the Holy Spirit working in you, without the power of God in your life. Now at this point, interestingly, just a digression for a moment, notice that Paul had mentioned imprisonment. Why did he do that on the forefront of saying you gotta walk in a manner worthy? And he mentions imprisonment. But there's a reminder here. He knows that that kind of a walk can really be costly to you. Look at what it cost him. He's hanging in chains. He's paid substantial cost. So what's it gonna cost you in the hallway of your school? What's it gonna cost you in the break room at work? What's it gonna cost you next time you sit down at Starbucks? to walk in a manner worthy. Because if you're doing that, people are gonna identify you as someone whose actions match up to who they say they are. And sometimes that caused you to be ostracized. It caused Paul to go to prison. So he wants the readers to know that this, this did not change his commitment to Christ even though he recognizes what it means to be a mature believer. So Paul has developed this amazing ability to see everything in light of the kingdom. He's looking at everything vertically before he looks at it horizontally. Because for us, you know, we're looking at a guy hanging in chains and we're thinking, what a negative environment. And he's looking at it as, these chains are for your glory. He's seeing everything vertically before he's seeing it horizontally. This word walk, I want to drill down into it for just a minute because it's really frequently used. I told you it's a key word in the last part of Ephesians, and it's used constantly throughout the New Testament. Think of it this way. Your walk is the process of becoming what you already are. Let that balance in your mind for a minute. It's the process of becoming what you already are. See, Princess Margaret was already a princess, but how she walked and handled herself in front of the microphone would speak highly to who she was. That's why her mom said, walk like a princess. Nate, under the barbed wire fence, you're a Marine, act like one. Alexander, you either change your name or you measure up because we've been told we've got to walk in a manner worthy. So this word walk, it's the process of becoming what you already are. We use a big church word when we describe that. It's called sanctification. You're justified immediately when, when you're saved. When you're a believer, you're justified. You're in. So we're not talking about becoming a believer. We're talking about somebody who's walking like they're a believer. So this word walk is axios. I want you to see it on the screen. Axios has to do with a, a weight and balance in the first century, especially think of someone holding scales in their hands. And an individual in a, in a market might be buying mint or rue, or some type of a spice, and so the market dealer would put on one side of the scale weights and measures, and they would feel on the other side of the scale the spice the person was buying, and it better equal out, or somebody's getting ripped off. So that's the word axios. That's how it applies to us, to walk in a manner worthy. So the word axios is worthy, and it's used here again in Colossians 1.10. Look at how it's used here. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Are you bearing fruit in your work? Are you increasing in your knowledge and understanding of God? See, a believer walking in a manner worthy has a daily living that matches their really high position of who they are in Christ. So what's this word calling? 
Because he said, you've received a calling. And immediately you start thinking, well, that, that applies to pastors. Pastors have received the calling. Well, I've had people ask me that. When, when, it, when did you receive the calling? Well, let's look at what this really means here because this word calling is, is used of you as well. First of all, Jesus used it in John 6, He said this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So that's, that's the calling. That's God calling. That's part of that predestination. This is a more specific way in Romans 8.30. Those whom God predestined, these he also called. Does that sound familiar to you, that word predestined? Think of Ephesians 1. Those whom God predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. As this is part of the process going on here. So that's you. You have a calling on your life. I don't know if you knew that. God has called you into this higher way of living. So it's not just pastors. So your heavenly calling, your salvation, if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, you've got a calling on your life. God's calling you to a higher standard. So that's verse one. We're only gonna do verses two and three and then we'll be done. So I, I, I wanna look at that with you very briefly. Verse two and three really depict an attitude. Now, it's not a technique. Most people are more interested in technique than attitude. If you don't believe me, just think of the publishing world. The publishing world sells books every week on technique, 10 ways to improve your life. You know, this technique, that we're, they know that we're a technique-oriented society, but the Bible has very little to say about technique. It has a lot to say about attitude, and verse two is all about attitude. Look with me at that. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So you got these characteristics of our walk. Five essentials, five attitudes on which walking worthy is predicated. The first one is humility. There's a remarkable thing about humility. It's a, a quality that is really highly sought by believers, but you can never claim it, can you? You can't go out and write a book on humility and how I achieved it because you lost it. As soon as you claim that you've got it, it's gone. You forfeit it. There's only one person who could write a book on humility. You know who that is? Yeah, it's the Jesus answer. You're safe with that one, right? You can throw that one. Okay, Jesus is the only one that could do that. He's the only one that could say, because think of this. Only one person is the king of glory reigning in heaven speaking worlds into existence, the star breather, Scripture calls him, and yet he left all of that to come here and be spit upon and be crucified and die for us? That's humility. That's humbleness. So Jesus uses this word of himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. He said, I have achieved it. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Now, Jesus used a very specific Greek word when he called himself humble. It's the word tapanos. I want you to see the definition. Tapanos, um, it means literally of low degree or low estate. Okay, so think of Jesus. He said of himself, foxes have dens, birds of the, nest have, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to sleep at night. That's how poor he was. He didn't have anything here on earth. He just didn't try to acquire it because he was here because God called him to this responsibility. So he's truly tapanos. He left everything to come to a low estate. So when Paul uses the word humility, 
in Ephesians, he did something really remarkable that you don't find too many places in the Bible. He created his own word. He took a word that Jesus used and he created a compound word. I want you to see that word up on the screen. It's tapanos, but it's put together with frosune. And frosune is the ability to think of yourself in a certain way. So he created this word that didn't exist prior to that time, and we believe that Paul created it because it wasn't even in existence in the Greek lexicon prior to the first century, always associated with the Christian church, and it means to think with lowliness of low degree. Why was that so important? Well, here's the situation. You and I drive pretty nice cars. We get to go eat wherever we want. I mean, we're well-fed. Some of us are really well-fed, right? We're not lacking for clothing. Life's pretty good. So we have to reshape our mind to think of ourselves, where we're in proper perspective of who we are to God. So Paul recognized that, took Jesus' word, who was in low estate, who was humble, and we have to transfer that to our mind to think of ourselves in this low, lowliness, low degree. Because here's the tr- struggle. You want to talk about pushing against culture and the culture that you live in? Paul was writing to Gentiles and, he, and Greeks living in Ephesus who thought of themselves with great pride. As a matter of fact, in the Roman world and in the Greek world, they didn't even have a word for humility. It didn't exist They didn't know what to do with that because when they thought of someone of low estate, they thought of them as failures. So when Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus and he's saying, you need to not only think of yourself in proper terms, you've got to think of yourself with this perspective that it's in your mind of who you are to God. And the Greek culture at the same time is screaming, no, you've got to be successful. So how do you balance those two things? That's why Paul's encouraging the church, keep it in perspective. Because the first sin was pride, right? The very first sin. Lucifer stands before God and all the angels in heaven and says, I will exalt myself and I will be as God. First sin was pride. So every sin thereafter has been an extension of that issue of pride where we want to do things on our own, our own way. So if the very first sin was pride, the absolute antithesis of pride is humility. And in my life, I found the only protection against pride because I got a big ego. I'm willing to admit that. I like the things that I do. And I've always had a big ego. My mom has probably been the one most responsible for building that into me. When I was eight years old, she bought me a cup that said Mark for President on it. I looked at it and I said, Mom, what are you doing? And she said, you got a choice in life. You can either be a preacher or a president. It's your call. Said, mom was responsible for making her kids believe they could do whatever they needed to do, and, and that result was an ego. And so I have to keep my ego in check, and I found in my life my only protection against pride, my only source of humility is a proper view of God and who he is and what his word says about him. And when I can keep that in balance, I can keep myself in perspective, in check. Because pride is something that Satan constantly brings my way. 
So we cannot even become Christians without humility, according to what Scripture says, without recognizing that we're a sinner in need of a Savior. Look at what Jesus said. God himself is saying this, Matthew 18, 3. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself. It's a big deal. A real big deal, this issue of humility. Okay, that's number one. Uh, The next one, the next characteristic is gentleness. Humility produces gentleness. And it's, it's one of the truest, surest signs of humility in your life is when you're gentle with people. Uh, let me put this in perspective for you. Your Bible, your translation that you're holding today might say meekness right there. You can use the words interchangeably. Now, if you go home today and you open up your dictionary, maybe you got one at home in your library, you open up a dictionary and you look at the word meekness or gentleness in, in Webster's Dictionary or the New American Standard Dictionary, it's gonna say timid. Well, that's far from the biblical definition of someone who is gentle. That is not the biblical definition. I want you to see the biblical word. It's the word preotes. And preotes has to do with a very specific meaning because it was associated with wild animals. So I'll explain that in just a minute. But the preotes is that which is self-controlled. It's the opposite of vindictiveness. So it was used of those who trained animals, especially wild animals, who domesticated them and brought them into the first century world. So an individual would go out and capture wild horses, for instance, and bring those horses in and domesticate them. What happens when you bring a wild horse in? You have to break them. Now, it's not necessarily breaking their spirit, but it's breaking their will. Because a horse who has been brought under the action of preotes is still just as muscular, is still just as fast, is still just as powerful, but yet his desires have been channeled. And that's the way Paul's using this of us, this this action of gentleness. So the same word was used of Moses. Moses, we're told according to Numbers 11, was the meekest man in all the earth. Was Moses timid? No. Jesus said, not only am I humble, but I am gentle of heart. Was Jesus timid? No. So this is the same association for us, gentleness. What it really is, it's power under control. And sometimes in your life, that might be anger under control, keeping things in check, carefully directed, not a careless, wild venting of emotion but keeping our anger under control. This is the way it's written in Proverbs. I really like this verse I came across this week. Proverbs 16, 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. The third one is patience. This virtue of patience. And and if you're gonna walk worthy, an outgrowth of humility and gentleness is patience. And it's this this word here, this Greek word, macrothermia, and it it literally has to do with long-suffering. So let's associate it this way. Abraham was told by God that he was gonna be made into a great nation, that the Jewish people who came from him would be a powerful people. And Abraham waited for many, many years to see that. Uh, He's becoming an older man, older man. He gets to be ages, he's in his 90s and he still doesn't have a son. And he's patiently enduring, waiting for God to bring about that which he had already promised to him. But he had to wait many years to see it. This is this word, this concept of patience. Now, this is in contrast to the Greek culture in the first century. It's in contrast 
to our society today. We live in a do it now, I want it now society. Well, very much so in the first century, Aristotle was perhaps the greatest scholar that lived among these people at this time. And Aristotle had written to the Greek people telling them that the greatest virtue of a Greek was a refusal to tolerate any insult and always be ready in a moment to strike back. Because how dare you incite, insult the pride of the Greek people? And Paul's writing to the Greeks and telling them, put it in check. Be patient with people. So here's my definition for patience. Patience is waiting for God to act when, where, and how he chooses to. Here's the fourth one, forbearing love. And in your Bible, it says tolerance. The word tolerant, tolerant love is used in your Bible in the verse. Forbearing love is a better description for it. That's why I added that to the list, and here's why. The word tolerance has been greatly corrupted in our society today. We're, we're told that if, if we believe, for instance, that Jesus is the only way to heaven, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man gets to the Father except through me, if you declare that in public, you're told what? You're intolerant. You have no tolerance. Well, that's a corruption, okay? Tolerance in the scriptural meaning, the actual biblical meaning when it's used is forbearing love. And, and what it really means is someone who's in a very difficult situation, is willing to extend love to someone no matter the circumstances. So we think of Jesus when he said in Matthew 5, pray for those who persecute you. And get, get your mind around that. Somebody's beating you with a whip, nailing you to a cross, and Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the biblical definition of tolerance forbearing love so you get that together in your mind and you take all four of those and you attach them to the fifth one which is unity that's the ultimate outcome of humility gentleness patience and forbearance is unity because it it builds into us and here's the truth this may surprise you that kind of unity cannot be produced by the church it's not possible that kind of unity cannot be produced by you individually. You read the verse very closely. Look at what it says. The unity of the Spirit. See, it's a characteristic of the Spirit. It's something that belongs to God. You think of our society. We constantly are trying to produce peace treaties. There's this great imbalance in a phrase when you say Middle East peace treaty, right? (laughs) The two don't fit together. It just doesn't exist. And yet we constantly are trying to negotiate treaties around the world. Unity is not something that man can create. It's only created by the Holy Spirit. It's the unity that Jesus prayed for in the upper room the night before he's going to be betrayed. He's praying that they would be one as he and the Father are one. Why? Because it's a powerful witness to the world when we walk in humility and we walk in gentleness and patience and forbearance and we exhibit unity because that's the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. So we can't produce it on our own. It's just an outgrowth of who we are. I want to end it this way, because John MacArthur had a a great summarization of it. I want you to see his quote. He said this, Humility gives birth to gentleness. Gentleness gives birth to patience. Patience gives birth to forbearing love. And all four of those characteristics preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
These virtues and the supernatural unity to which they testify are probably the most powerful testimony the church can have because they are in such contrast to the attitudes and the disunity of the world. Now, unity doesn't come natural, does it? It's just not who we are. You can imagine going into your workplace or into your school or to Starbucks and you begin walking in a manner worthy by being gentle when the waitress messes up your order and patient when somebody says something that ticks you off or forbearing love when you get that rotten news you don't want to hear and how that speaks to those who are watching you. We're told that's the characteristics of someone who's walking worthy of the high calling by which you've been called. Jesus understood this would be a major issue for us, so let me paint the picture to close this for you. It'll sound like a digression, but it's not intended to. Think of Moses on Mount Sinai. God says, I've got some commandments I want you to pay attention to, and these are the rules by which you're going to function. As a society, they still carry through today. So Moses is on Mount Sinai. Sinai is covered with smoke. God shows up, thunder, flashes of lightning, and we're told by God's finger, by the stroke of Jehovah, he carves into stone tablets his commandments. You will have no other gods before me, and Charlton Heston falls backwards. And then you will not kill, and Charlton Heston ducks. Charlton Heston plays Moses, if you don't know that. Okay, so we've got God's commandments with power, thunder, lightning on the side of Mount Sinai. And then God shows up again in the first century. And God says to his people, I've got another one. I've got a commandment that I want you to pay attention to, a new commandment. Look with me on the screen at John 13, 34. A new commandment, this is not a replacement, this is in addition to, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Do you think when God says something three times, he means it? One, two, three. In that brief statement, God says, same power as Mount Sinai. Here's another commandment. Love one another. Why? Because all men will know. He's not saying the church will know. All society will know. Your friends at school, your friends in the workplace, they will know that you belong to me, that you're walking in a manner worthy. So what does God expect of you? He expects you to live like the person that you have become, to walk in a manner worthy, that his standards become our standards, his purposes, our purposes, his desires, our desires. And it starts with just a daily practice. You can't say a year from now I'm gonna be like that. You have to say today I start. So that a year from now you can look back and say, I'm that much further along the trail than what I was a year ago. And that requires the work of the Holy Spirit. So I'm gonna pray with you right now that God would do that in our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we've heard your word this morning and we've looked into it as best we can. Thank you for keeping distractions away. 
And thank you for speaking to us. And I'm confident, Father, in this room that you're speaking to every one of us in a different way, but you mean to speak to us. So we ask that you would take these things that we've heard and that we've processed and apply them to our life. And we not leave ourselves out of the equation and expect you to do it all. But God, that you would help us beginning today. If we're not there, we're, we're, we're at a point where we're willing to walk in a manner worthy of the high calling with which we've been called. Father, we ask that you would do that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would be able to see evidence in our life of that. Remind us, God. Remind us of these things that you've called us to, to gentleness, to humility, to patience, to forbearing love. And Father, let us be a representation to a world who's looking for answers of what unity really looks like. God, we ask this in the powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.